designed to help form substantive disciples out of the local church. In this upcoming podcast, you're going to be hearing audio from a seminar that our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, recently did called How Does It End? This seminar was about the end times passages in the Bible. So specifically, he's going to talk about different perspectives on those end time passages, why here at High Point Church we believe what we believe, and then why this matters to us as believers in Jesus who are trying to live lives of substance. So we hope that this podcast helps engage you with the topic of the end times in the Bible and equips you to know more about them. All right, so um, if you had a handout, you would see on the front of it topics in eschatology. One, what does our doctrinal statement say and what are the relevant biblical passages? Two, what happens to the individual after death? Three, apocalyptic literature. A few words on that. I'll tell you what apocalyptic literature is in those few words. Five, three views of the millennium. Six, what is the rapture and is it a thing? Seven, how should we see the final destiny of the condemned? And eight, pastoral and discipleship implications. Does this matter for anyone right now? Okay. Um, I do say this and explore that I am Italian, which means that the only way I would normally stop talking is by being interrupted, served food, or dying. And so um, I usually don't lose my train of thought if I'm interrupted. However, in a group this size, if anybody just interrupts whenever they darn well feel like it, that can be a problem. So what I'll try to do is go through a section. I'll try to under-talk rather than over-talk, and then stop for questions, comments, violent disagreements, and then go on to the next topic. And then we could circle back around at the end. Does that sound okay? Great. All right. If you have a handout, flip to the first thing, which is the, the uh, High Point Church doctrinal statement. Um, many of you may not have read any of these, but um, this is kind of our starting point. It's not the starting point of everyone, obviously, um, but this is what, what we profess here. So one is the believer's security and perseverance. Um, I'm not going to go over that very much, but the doctrine of assurance and security are technically eschatological doctrines, right? If you believe that you can know now what will happen to you then, then you believe you know something about then. Does that make sense? So in that sense, the doctrines of a sense of assurance and security is directly related to what we call eschatology. And by, by the way, eschatology, it says on the first page, eschaton means last, right, in Greek. So eschatology is the logos of the eschaton, or the logic of the last things, or the study of last things. So when I say eschatology, I'm just quoting Greek to sound intelligent, to say, you know, the stuff that happens at the end, right? Okay, so one. Okay, so under section seven, resurrection immortality, this is just a couple sentences, so I'll read it. We believe that at the return of Jesus Christ, the righteous dead will be raised, and the living believers will be changed so that both will have a literal spiritual will have literal spiritual and immortal bodies like Christ's own glorious body. Right? So th that's the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. That is, that we will, in the eschaton, or the last stage, whatever that is, we'll get to that in a bit, we will be embodied creatures. So a lot of people sometimes believe that we'll die and our soul will go to be with God. And we'll talk about the intermediate state in a little bit. But the ultimate end of human existence, the Bible teaches, is an embodied existence in a recreated physical world in which God dwells. Does that make sense? So 
The idea is not that we'll exist forever in, as disembodied spirits, right? Okay, great. Section 10, Christ's second coming. We believe in the personal, visible, imminent, and premillennial return of Christ. While Christ did not reveal the time of his return and cautions us against speculation, we'll talk about that phrase a little bit, he encourages us to watch and pray. At his promised return, Christ will descend in the air to catch away his waiting bride, the church. Christ will descend with his saints to establish a long-promised kingdom and to reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Prior to Christ's ultimate return to reign, the great tribulation judgments will be visited upon the rebellious world. Now, you'll notice if you have a handout that there are footnotes in there. Those footnotes are directly related to those verses. That doctrinal statement is essentially a string together of verses in the Bible and nothing more. You will actually find that most of High Point's doctrinal statement is spliced verses. Which I think is great because if you read those verses in their context, they do mean what they claim to mean in these passages. Um, but it also makes for a little bit splicey kind of read to it, right? So it's a, it's, you know, you get something, you lose something in doing it that way. Section 11, judgments. We believe that our sins are judged in, the, in Christ on the cross, cross and that the believer's works will be judged for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ at the time of his second coming. We believe that all others will appear before God for judgment at the great white throne. Those redeemed shall be welcomed to heaven for eternity, while the unredeemed shall be consigned to the lake of fire. There is one in my office if you want me to grab it. Oh, I don't think I have one of those. It might, it's probably just... Oh, anyway. Sorry, I'll let you fool it. Oh, why it won't go over there? Oh. Okay, I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, 12, the eternal state. We believe that after all God's enemies are consigned to the lake of fire, the present order of things will be dissolved in a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness shall be brought in as the final state in which the righteous will dwell forever. All right, well, there it is. You got it? You ready to go home? Okay, so, all right, so uh, those are the relevant statements in our doctrinal statement. I want you to have those. Um, there's a lot of nuance in there that if you know stuff about eschatology, you're like, well, wait, what about, well, what about, well, what about? Um, so that's what we're going to talk about. So number two, what happens to individuals after death? Okay, so a lot of people naturally believe that um, after death, what will happen is basically you'll just like fall asleep, right? Because Paul literally refers to some people who have died in the Bible as some have fallen asleep. And so that kind of makes sense that you would die, you'd kind of fall asleep. And then Jesus comes back and everybody like wakes up at the same time, kind of like when you're really tired and you fall asleep and it feels like one second and then boom, it's like daytime again, but you kind of feel well rested, right? And then there'll be Jesus. And there's that's a perfectly reasonable and rational view um, here's the problem with it. The problem with it is that there are certain situations in the New Testament that seem to claim that there is a state of conscious existence for believers and probably unbelievers between the time of their death and the second return of Christ. And that state appears to be a disembodied state. Now, there are a lot of scientific questions related to how consciousness exists without brains. Right? That's a whole nother lecture, okay? About neuroscience and soulishness and all consciousness and all of that, okay? I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, 
But what the Bible seems to teach, though, is that there is something that theologians just call the intermediate state, which is the spiritual, disembodied, conscious existence of believers in a pre-final judgment placement in what the Bible usually calls either Sheol or sometimes it's referred to as Hades or different things. This, it's partly difficult because there are a few places in the New Testament where the Greek word that's used is a borrowed word. And the, when you borrow a word from hell from another language, in the ancient world at least that language had its own theology, right? So if you borrow the Greek word for hell, the, the word is Hades. But Hades has all its own theology within Greek, right? And so you've got to kind of figure like, well, what if that comes with and what if it doesn't, right? And you're supposed to figure that out. And so there's some, there is some room for figuring there. But what it essentially seems to mean is, is that there is a place that is not the lake of fire, but that is not pleasant. That the unredeemed exist in the disembodied state until the ultimate judgment. Right? What the, now, this isn't a literal teaching, but there is a parable of Jesus in which there's a beggar, right? The poor man Lazarus. He's outside the rich man's gate, right? And then they both die, and the poor beggar is in the bosom of Abraham, it's called, right? And the rich man is in fire, apparently, right? And yet he can talk to Abraham, right? And so there's a, there's a lot of debate because it's a parable, right? It's not direct teaching on the metaphysics of the intermediate state, right? So we don't know how much you can take from that. Because the point of the parable is the relationship between this poor man and the rich man who's died and on what evidence people will believe if they won't believe the Bible, or Moses in this case, right? And so that parable really isn't about that. And yet Jesus talks about it like everybody knows this is what happens. So in that sense, there is sort of like a... And this is what... You're going to hear a lot of this tonight. The teaching on the end times is vague. Probably very intentional. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't hear Albert, he's like, that's why we came. <laughs> so um, so if you if you put together the verses, right, that are relevant to this, they they basically claim there is a there is an existence between physical death and the final resurrection of bodies. We call it the intermediate state. Is it it is a conscious existence? Right? And it endures that long, and it is not our favorite thing. Right? If you read 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about us not wanting to be unclothed of our bodies, yet us wanting to be clothed in bodies. And that whole thing is kind of an issue for us. Because we are natively embodied creatures. And so when you sort of like shed this body, yeah, in certain ways that's cool because like there's no more disease. There's no more mental illness. There's no more, like, that kind of stuff. Age and that, you're right. But yet, it's not the fact that we were embodied that was the problem. It was the fact that our bodies are dying and are broken that is the problem. And so our ultimate hope is to receive and to be embodied in new resurrection bodies that don't have those broken qualities, but that we're embodied. And that, that's why it's important right now for Christians not to think in those terms, that our bodies are, like, the Greeks used to think of the body as the prison house of the soul, right? Plato thought it would be really fantastic if we could exist just pure consciousness without physical bodies, right? Because all of our desires really like pull us down and keep us from rising up to where we could all be philosopher kings. That's not really a Christian view. Do you understand? And that's important to recognize. Okay, so have you heard enough about this? Yeah, Kara? As I know, 
No, everybody burns it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, um, right, so, so people often refer to, it, refer to it as paradise, right? So, like, Jesus says to the guy on the cross, right, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, um, this is the problem. Like, there's a place. Well, I don't know if it's spatially a place, but it's a place, right? It's, it's a realm of existence, whether it's spatial or not, I don't know. Um, where we will be conscious and where we will be glad, right? Um, but we will not be what we will be. And then there's a sense of real incompleteness. Does that make sense? I don't think a nagging sense of incompleteness, but a sense of incompleteness. Like we know this is not where we're headed. Does that make sense? Yeah, but the, the problem is, is that like a lot of this stuff is in the Psalms, which is poetic literature. So, so we'll get to this when we talk about apocalyptic literature in just a minute. So hold on to that, that bit. That's a, it's a good instinct that's very important for this whole thing. Because this is, I'll explain why we get into a lot of problems in our eschatology, because we're actually not sensitive to the kind of literature we're interpreting. So just give me a second for that. I want to stop just for a minute. If you have a handout um, where it says judgment at the bottom of page three, if you remember from that statement, from our doctrinal statement, it says the great white throne of judgment. Okay, so look at section 11 on 12. I'm sorry, on page 2. Sorry, my mind is going too fast. We believe that our sins are judged in Christ on the cross, and that the believer's works will be judged for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ at the time of his coming. We believe that all others will appear before God for judgment at the great white throne. Those redeemed shall be welcomed into heaven for eternity, while the unredeemed shall be consigned to the lake of fire. Okay, so a, you need to understand. So High Point Church's background is historically fundamentalist Baptist. Historically in America, fundamentalist Baptists have come out of the strain of theology called dispensationalism. Okay, Dispensationalism, that word comes from the idea of a dispensation. All right. A dispensation is a distinct period of time characterized by just a number of things, okay? So this dispensation, this two hours, will be characterized by a bunch of people talking about the end times. Then we'll stop, and this dispensation will be over, and then it'll be like the bedtime dispensation, or like unhealthy Netflix binging dispensation, <laughs> or something like that, you, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, Christian theologians have always talked about there being dispensations, right? There's the dispensation of Adam, Right? Like Adam was innocent and Eve and they hadn't sinned yet. And that was like a different time. And then there was a dispensation of Noah, right? Where there was a certain amount of knowledge and a certain amount of things unknown. And then there was a dispensation of Abraham where there was promise, but it was a little promise. And there was, wasn't yet the law. And so what God credited to Abraham righteousness on the, on the basis which he probably wouldn't have after Moses, right? He certainly wouldn't have after Moses, right? And so as you move along through the promises of God being worked out, you end up in sort of like different functional time periods. Does that make sense? And those are all different dispensations. Does that make sense? See, if we, if we say, look, if you want to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus, right? See, nobody would have said that to Abraham, right? Because he, he would have been able to believe in Jesus by his name. All he would have been able to do is to believe in God's promise, which for him was, you're going to have a son. That's it, man. Right? And so Abraham believed that. Do you understand? Now, dispensationalism 
is a distinctly American theology popularized by a group of theologians called the Princetonians, who were actually, a number of them, very great theologians and incredible intellects that would dizzy most of us if they were speaking here instead of me, okay? So don't get from what I'm about to say that they were not astounding, okay? They were some of the greatest American theologians ever were. But as they were reckoning with this, when their theology of dispensations got into the hands of certain fundamentalist revivalists, they tried to work everything out, okay? This would be like Ryrie and, um, his name starts with S, who did Schofield, I think was one of them. And so they tried to like work everything out so like you could have this like map of the end times, right? And they, they, they would divide things all up so, far, so much so that they believed that the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Paul were different gospels. That when the apostle Paul said, my gospel, he meant the gospel of grace that is, you believe in Jesus, you're saved, that's it, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven. does not matter what you do, you, that's it, because it's grace, it's sheer favor, right? Whereas Jesus, like, told people they had to do stuff, and if they didn't do it, man, they were in trouble, right? He'd be like, look, you can say you know me, but, like, I, man, I never knew you, right, in, in Matthew 7. And so these dispensationalists were like, yeah, so Jesus was preaching that, but then after he died and rose, Paul received his gospel, and that's the dispensation we are under. And so what that led people to read a lot of a lot of Paul and not a lot of Gospels. You understand? Which led to a lot of unhelpful things, including thinking you knew stuff about the end times that you didn't, and the belief that the main thing we're doing is getting people saved, which means saying I believe in Jesus without a reference to discipleship, right? Because that's all in Jesus. All that stuff like you need to take up your cross and follow me every day, or you you can't be part, right? That's all Jesus. And if you think that's a different gospel, well then what? Who cares if he gets this guy over here gets saved and then has 54 affairs? Like it, that's not really relevant if he accepted Jesus because Jesus died for all his sins and salvation is by grace. It's a free gift, right? And so the nuancing of understanding how like, no, Jesus believes that what you believe you'll do because that's what belief is, right? If you believe something, you'll do it, right? Your actions are your belief speech, right? Now, obviously that, that gets really complicated with human subconscious and like, problems with your childhood and who do you have deeper beliefs than your supervenient mental beliefs that you are persuaded of and that's like a whole nother lecture okay which not as many people probably come to um <laughs> but just as important at least as important as this one okay yeah. um so what happened there was is they started dividing things up a lot right and so one of the things that happened there is they would find language, and instead of like saying, oh, this is the same language for this other thing, it's the same, it's different language, but it's the same thing. Jesus says paradise here, it says bosom of Abraham here. They're both referring to the same thing. It's like the disembodied say before the find, the end, right? Whatever that is. Does that make sense? Now, within dispensational Baptist theology, they read judgment seat of Christ in one place in relationship to the judgment of believers. And then in Revelation, they read Great White Throne of Judgment, which was, in that context, mainly a place of condemnation. And they deduced from that, partly because they already believed in this my gospel, Paul and Jesus preaching different gospel stuff, that if you were a believer, you never were going to face any kind of meaningful judgment. Right? So there's this big, great white throne of judgment where all of humanity, really all unbelieving humanity, will come before it. And basically everybody there gets condemned. It is the great white throne of judgment, negative sense of judgment. Over here is the seat of Christ, 
his judgment seat, which is where believers go, and they, they pass right past the great white throne. They never step in front of it, and they get before the judgment seat of Christ, and Jesus is like, this is how good a job you did. Like, you're guaranteed going into heaven. This is how, like, here's your rewards. This is what happened. We could have done this better, maybe. Like, this is going to be your job in heaven. You're going to be the gardener over there. Like, that kind of stuff, okay? Now, it's possible that's right. It's more probable that those are just different idioms in the Bible for something similar that doesn't get fully explained. That's more likely, in my view. But that's what that language, that's where that language is from when you read our doctrinal statement. It's from that history of Baptist dispensationalism. And it's, it, it, you can find it in churches where there's a very strong sense that if you accept Jesus, you're going to heaven, that's all there is to it, therefore you'll never face any kind of judgment, and even the sorting out in the end, right? But then, you know, you kind of want to ask, okay, well, in Matthew 25, Jesus literally says, at the end, the Son of Man will separate humanity like the shepherds separate the sheep and the goats, right? Or, um, you know, there's a guy who went and planted his field with wheat, and then another guy came and planted, planted the weeds, and they're all growing up together, and the people say, well, should we weed? And he's like, no, you'll pull it all up, we'll just wait to the end, and I'll sort it all out then, right? Now, you can argue that those are... Those are idioms that mean something else, but that's what that's where we get with all this tra um, not translation, with all this um, interpretation stuff, right? It's not like interpretation is this wide open thing, but that you're always dealing with language, and language always has idioms, and you got to figure out based on the context what goes where. And when you're trying to work with something that's not all worked out yet, that's harder, right? The apostles worked out what the death of Jesus meant after Jesus rose from the dead, right? Jesus told them exactly what was happening before he died and rose, and they could not figure it out. And then after Jesus died and rose from the dead, they were like, oh, like, well, after Jesus reappeared to them and then explained it again, right? <laughs> and so it, it may be fairly likely that we will have a similar experience with our eschatology after this all goes down. We'll be like, oh, that's what that guy Daniel was. Like, so, right, so just got to be careful with that. Okay, great. Questions, comments, remarks, final disagreements on two, page three. Did I ever explain that one? Yes, ma'am. So when Paul Corinthians says, like, it's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, like, I've heard that as, like, a, so when you die, you're instantly with Jesus and whatever paradise this is, is, like, heaven and God's there. Right. Where do you stand on that? How would you interpret that? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, so, so most views of the intermediate state are that there's, what is essentially a pre-heaven and essentially a pre-hell, right? Like there's a place of separation and torment, there's a place of presence and experience, but you're still meant to be an embodied creature and you're not. So there's an incompleteness to it, but like I said before, I don't know what the word I was before, but it's not like a nagging incompleteness. It's just like you're not where you're gonna end up, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, Paul says that in Philippians too. Like, I, if you're out in this jail cell, I'd be perfectly happy to die and be with Jesus. That would be awesome. So he clearly thinks if he dies, he's going to be in the presence of Jesus. But then he's like, but you guys need me, so I'm going to hang out, right? As long as I think that's what's going to happen, right? So yeah, no, that Paul clearly believes that's what's going to happen. And since that's the Bible and we believe the Spirit, yeah, I'm going with that one, yeah. Like, how does the intermediate state theologically play in with, like, the resurrections that go on during the, the like, Jesus rises Lazarus? Because Lazarus is, like, in Abraham's bosom and is a much happier place. Like, coming back to earth is pretty lame. Yeah. Yeah, you would think that, but then you would be an utterly fearless human being, which would be kind of cool. 
<laughs> right, like, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, that sounds like it would stink, right? I agree. But there might be some benefits to it, and who knows, maybe Lazarus died the next year, I don't have to tell you. Yeah, but I mean, let's, listen, Jesus can do whatever he wants with you. And if he wants to let you see heaven and pull you back, then there you go, man. So maybe, maybe I mean, you can make an interesting philosophical argument that Lazarus suffered more than any other human that ever existed other than Jesus, then maybe. That would be an interesting theological argument. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if this is a silly question or not, but do, do we know for sure if the Lazarus in the parable is the same as the Lazarus um, who was related to Mary and Martha? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. So, do we know for sure, like, when he mentions Lazarus, is that the same Lazarus necessarily as the one who raised up from the dead? There no, they're different. Actually, when I was in high school, I was in this, like, bi-county choir concert, and there was a song about the poor beggar guy, Lazarus, and the choir director was like, hey, who knows the story of Lazarus? And I was like, oh, I do! And I did the whole Jesus raising from the dead one. And it was really embarrassing. <laughs> They're different Lazarus. Yeah. Okay, so uh, number three on page four, we probably need to keep moving here. Um, apocalyptic literature. So um, ap apocalypto in Greek means revealed or shown or made manifest. So, um, but apocalyptic literature is a kind of literature that is used by persecuted minority groups, okay? It's, it's specific to persecuted minority groups in which they use language sets that the oppressing class doesn't understand, okay? So in the book of Ezekiel, for example, and this is in, um, you were mentioning Howard Thurman's book, Jesus for the Disinherited. He talks about how like um, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is like excoriating the Babylonian king, but in the prophetic oracle, he calls him the king of Tyre, which is like a different place, right? But it's, like if you read it carefully, it's all about the king of Babylon and God's judgment on the king of Babylon. So if you were a Jew and you heard that and you were in captivity in Babylon, you knew that that oracle was all about the judgment on the king over you who was oppressing you. But they didn't. Do you understand? And so when John writes the apocalypse, right, He's writing a kind of literature to Christians who are being persecuted under Roman rule, right? A book that's going to be read about, partially at least, the destruction of the Roman Empire and their horrific um, attacks and misuse and oppression of Christians in a way that the average Roman like, official could read it and they would not understand what the book was about. They just wouldn't get it. So that John could impart all kinds of spiritual teachings to the church they would understand its linguistic encoding, but, but the majority oppressive culture would not, okay? Now, what that means is, is that for a lot of Americans, like, well, there basically isn't apocalyptic literature, right, that we're used to. Does that make sense? Um, there is still some, but even usually oppressed minority groups don't really use apocalyptic literature the same way, right? You can find that in some, like, American spirituals and stuff, like, like certain Negro spirituals will have a little bit of encoding, but not much. There isn't a lot of it. Does that make sense? So, because part of the, one of the things that people sometimes don't understand is that in places like America and India, the minority groups that fought against their oppressors, even though their oppressors were very wicked, they were from a Judeo-Christian tradition, and they didn't just kill everyone. And so you, when you went against the Romans, they just killed you. Okay? It's kind of like the people who did civil disobedience under Stalin. Like, can anybody name a group that did civil disobedience under Stalin? Right? You can't, because they're all dead. Okay? They're all dead. 
So um, the, only, the only civil disobedience people you know about are the ones who fought against their very wicked oppressors in Judeo-Christian, British-American rule. Okay? That was not the case for the Apostle John. The Apostle John was going against an empire that would just flat kill them. Like, in mass. Okay? And set them on fire and throw them to lions. Okay? And so he's, he's being a little cagey. Okay? And so when we read, and so the book of Daniel is very similar, right? Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. People have tried to kill him a number of times already. Right? That there's no question about people, because the, the first half of Daniel is people trying to kill Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> Section 1. Second half of Daniel is apocalyptic literature, right? That makes sense, right? Everybody's trying to kill me? Uh, apocalyptic literature, right? And most of the other apocalyptic literature, like Ezekiel, comes from captivity periods, okay? So what that means is, is that you are reading intentionally encoded literature, right? So you should think about that when you interpret it. Like, it may not all be literal. It might not be that easy to interpret 2,000 years later. A lot of it might have been fulfilled at the time. It's really hard to know. Does that make sense? And so, um, whenever you interpret the Bible, one of the first questions you should ask about any section that you interpret is, what kind of literature is this? Right? This gets back to Kara's question about, about Sheol and paradise and all that kind of stuff. Most of the places where intermediate state destinations show up in the Bible are in non-didactic literature. Here's what I mean by that. Or discourse literature. Discourse literature is, let me, let me just tell you stuff. So like Ephesians, like Paul's telling us stuff theologically, right? Straightforwardly, in sentences. That's called discourse or didactic. Didactic is a word for teaching, right? He's just teaching you. And so there's no encoding, and it's not, it's not meant to be emotionally evocative. So it's not poetry or some other kind of literature like that, right? But if, like, you're in love with a girl, and you, like, write her a teaching essay about how like much you like her, right? That usually doesn't go over super well, right? But if you write a much shorter poem of like evocative language that, that really isn't literal, like you, you're not really gonna lasso the moon, you're not, you don't think she has stars inside her eyes, like you don't literally believe all that stuff, but you like, you're trying to like make, make a picture of human feeling transfigured into something divine almost, right? Transcendent, right? That you, you write differently, right? And so interpreting that has very different rules. Now the rules that you automatically know, like very few women read a love poem and go, I don't know how to interpret this. <laughs> right? Like you just know, you're, and if, you, if I give you a legal document, you'd read that and you would know it. you're like, somebody's trying to cover their butt. That's what this is about, right? Like that's, because it's written like that and you know that that's the kind of literature it is, right? And so the Bible has poetry, it has apocalyptic, it has discourse, it has narrative, it has parable, it has proverb, right? And all those have slightly different rules about how you interpret them, but they're not difficult rules. If you pay attention to the kind of thing you're reading, you can usually sort it out pretty well. Does that make sense? And if you can't, usually there's like a one-page introduction in your Bible, and it'll tell you, right? And it takes about a minute to read that for the average English reader, okay? So... I say that because I'm going to tell you that most of what people think they know about the end times is essentially speculative. And it's speculative because there are limitations to how sure your conclusions can be when you're reading certain kinds of literature. 
So when David refers to like the bad place to go if you die as Sheol in a poetic writing of a psalm, how literally can you take that? Right? He could be literally referring to the literal place he thinks he's literally going to go, because sometimes people use a literal reference in poetry. But you can also be like, I'm going to be swallowed by a dragon. And you can be referring to the pain of death. And you can be like, oh, apparently, like the bad place you go is like a dragon eats you. Right? Like, you, you have to, but see, you, and it's very difficult in poetry to know. Right? Because why could it be a dragon eating you, right? I don't know. Okay, so are we good on literature? Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so the question is, did, yeah, 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 the question is, so does that mean that John wrote an apocalyptic, or did God show it to him apocalyptically, and he wrote what he saw, right? And I think on the basis of how John is written, I would mean I would take it the latter one. I would say, there's no reason to believe John didn't have visions, and he just wrote down visions. Um, but there are other ways in which he made he might have made language choices in which he was intentionally increasing the encoding or keep making sure he kept it and didn't give too many reveals and interpretation. But no, I think I think John saw visions for sure. I mean, I don't I don't see why you would say he wouldn't. Sometimes when people read literature like that, they they know what other possibilities are and then they say the most materialistic possibility must be what happened, right? So it's possible to take the Book of Jonah as wisdom literature, right? And if it's possible that in wisdom literature, the characters aren't always literal characters. And if it's possible to take Jonah as a wisdom book, and if wisdom book characters aren't always literal characters, then it's possible there was no Jonah. And therefore no real swallowing him, that that's all, that's all wisdom literature. It's meant to teach a lesson. It's not meant to say this guy, ha this happened. Yeah, well, but Jonah's also in the prophetic books. He's put forward to us as a prophet. He ha takes a prophetic action. It's situated in history. There are no signals that it's merely wisdom except the fact that we don't like, we have to believe you swallowed by a whale and spit back out alive, right? But the way most rabbis have handled that is to believe that Jonah died in the belly of the whale and then was resuscitated, which is why then, well, that just makes it more Christological. So I don't know why rabbis would take it that way, but that's the way most people think, okay? All right, so <clears throat> chapter four, or section four, not chapter four. God help us. <laughs> how does the um, how does this age as we know it end and what happens after? Okay, so um, the Bible teaches in numerous places what is sometimes referred to as the imminent return of Christ. Now, imminent means the thing that happens next. Sorry, I'm I'm gonna need to take this off because I'm sweating a bit. Okay, so the thing that happens next may be happening in two seconds, like me taking off this sweater. Or the imminent thing may be just the next thing that happens in, like, the football season. So there's a game coming, Super Bowl's in like two weeks, right? So, like, in a couple weeks there's going to be a game and something's going to happen. And that's the next thing that's going to happen in the NFL season, assuming that there's not some kind of, like, media storm over something, right? Imminent does, so imminent does not mean, like, when we say imminent, we often mean, like, it's going to happen in 20 minutes or, like, five minutes or less. And that's not what the word imminent means in the Bible. It means it is the next thing in an order of things. Does that make sense? And so when people refer to the imminent return of Christ, what they're saying is, is that in the realm of how things are going to happen, the next thing that's going to happen 
is that Jesus is going to return. Does that make sense? Now, that could happen, like, really tiny, like, you know, before we get out of here. Or it could happen, like, you know, we could be... I remember reading this in Richard John Newhouse years ago before he died. He said, it may be that Jesus will come back in 20 minutes. It may also be that we are living in the very first years of the early church. Right? And so, I think Roger Olson, who's one of the founders of the Evangelical Free Church, said, the purpose of the imminent return of Christ is that you, every Christian believes and knows spiritually that the next thing that's going to happen to them spiritually is that they're going to be in the presence of Christ himself. Okay? It is kind of irrelevant if that's in 20 minutes or if that's in 20 years or whatever. Right? The idea is, is that, therefore, if you believe that the next thing is Jesus, that you will comport yourself, that you will live in such a way at this moment, knowing the next thing is Jesus face to face. Okay? And so Olson said, any way you want to look at that, so that the next thing is Jesus, and that affects the way you live right this second, we're good. Okay? And so because of that, people who have a strong view of the imminent return of Christ, which you should because there's a ton of scriptures that teach it, will say any view of what happens in the order of the events at the end, which makes it so the next thing isn't Jesus, that that's a bad eschatology. Does that make sense? So in that sense, Olson would rule out what is sometimes called post-millennialism, which is that the world is going to get better and better and better and better and better and better until it is basically like the kingdom of God on earth, and then Jesus is going to return, okay? So, if, so let's say that's the case, right? Is Jesus going to come back in 20 minutes? No, no, we just had two new gangs move into Madison, right? Like it's, it's not happening in 20 minutes. I mean, this is not the kingdom of heaven on earth, right? And so is it okay if, like, you stole a car today? Like, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it doesn't, right? You see, you're not, you're not like, well, Jesus could come back at any time. And so there are certain eschatologies that Olson would have said, these are not Christian eschatologies. And it's because the most clear doctrine of the end, that the next thing is Jesus, and the effect that that will have on every believer, is taken away by the way the eschatology is talked about. And that should not happen. Therefore, that view is wrong. Does that make sense? So I am sympathetic, and so is Shirley, to that view. Um, okay. And return of Christ, and that Jesus returns. Um, in Acts 1.11, the angels say to the disciples who just saw Jesus ascend, they said, look, this same Jesus will descend like you saw him go up. Now, are there slightly non-absolutely little ways to interpret that? Maybe. Is there any reason to do so? I can't think of one. So, the return of Christ appears to be, in every context, a bodily return. And so, um, and, and this is true in the later passages in Matthew's gospel. And so, and this is important because there are a number of heresies over the history of the church, and there are probably a few presently, that want to claim a, a spiritual return of Christ. And I think the point of Acts 111, and I think the reason why Luke included that, is so that Christians would never be fooled by that. That Christians can know that so-and-so and such and such says, well, I'm the spiritual return of Jesus, right? Um, there, there is no 12th imam in Christianity, okay? The return of Jesus will be the return of that same Jesus. In fact, I know Christians who debate with Muslims who say, you know, like, don't you know the prophet Muhammad, what, the prophet Elijah Muhammad in America, he was like the, the incarnation of Jesus, and they're like, no, because it says right there in Acts 111, 
this same Jesus. If Elijah Muhammad were a short Palestinian carpenter, I'd be open to the idea. But he's not. Okay, so I think that that might be helpful. Okay, so moving on to the question of the millennium. Okay, so millennium, yes. Yell. Yeah. Okay, so what, what translation are you reading out of? That's Anna Google. <laughs> 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 okay. So there's a little bit different way to translate the last part of that verse, but I think if you read on, is that that's in Matthew, right? Yeah, I think if you read on, either the very next passage or the passage after the very next passage is the transfiguration on the mount. And so most Bible interpreters see it that way, that like Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured into glory. And there's three of the guys that were there for that that see that, right? And God actually speaks presently and says, this is my son. And whatever else he says, I can't remember right now. But there's this, so it's called the transfiguration. And most biblical scholars will say, that's what Jesus was talking about. Does that make sense? All right, so Millennium. You ready for Millennium? Okay, great. Is everybody doing okay? Is this interesting? How are we doing? Okay, great. Um, I'm just going to listen to the people who say it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, back to the reference of where people go when they die. My King James Bible says in Revelations that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will be taken up first, and then the rest of the living Christians will be taken up after that. Do you think that's literal? Yeah, um, right after we talk about millenniums, we're going to talk about rapture, and that's that question. So hang with me for like 15 more minutes, or 27 or 84. Okay, so, um, all right, so the millennium is, okay, so wait, can we bring up the passage here? Let me see. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to um, Revelation chapter 20. And uh, in Revelation 20, there is a reference to the millennium. Now, as far as I remember, and I think this is right, it is the only direct reference to the millennium that calls it a millennium. And it doesn't say millennium, it just says a thousand years. In the Bible. Okay. So a lot of stuff has already happened in Revelation up until this point. Revelation is kind of winding up at this point. And it's talking about judgments and how they're going on. And in, I'm, just, I'm sure this is going to work in a minute. And so there is an explanation of what's happening. And there's a point where it says that Jesus will return and there will be a 1,000 year reign. Okay. And that is an event that happens that is not the final coming of Jesus. It's not the final incoming of the kingdom of God. It's something else. Okay? And, all right, let me, let me find it here and we'll read it real quick so everybody's working off the same, off the same thing. Okay, so Revelation 20. So you see there's only 22 chapters in the book. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is referring not just to all the dead in Christ. It's specifically referring to people who have been martyred. Okay? There's a very, if you read the, the, the book of Revelation carefully, there is a lot of places where people assume it's referring to all Christians who have died, and it is not. It specifically says that these are people who have been martyred. Yes? Would Paul be there? Would Paul be there? Yeah, you would think so. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand the question. I'm not sure he got to interact with every soul personally. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's keep moving. Sorry. I'm sorry I didn't get to to feel the weight of that question like maybe you intended it. Yes, surely. Yeah, well, let's come back to that. Okay. All right. We'll let you go on to that for a minute when we get there. All right. We're answering your hands. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne. This is that, remember I said great white throne before? This is where they get them from. And then I saw a great white throne, and on him and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades. So Hades would be the reference to the intermediate state place for those who had been pre-condemned. Does that make sense? gave up their dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. The death, okay, the reason, see, did you notice the reference, both references to according to what they had done? That's why within dispensational fundamentalism, Christians don't stand before the way through judgment, because we're not judged on the basis of what we're done, we've done. Do you see that idea? Now, I don't agree with that interpretation, but that's how you get there, right? You're like, oh, we're saved by grace, and this is Paul's gospel, and Jesus' gospel, and if you're judged, all these people are judged by what they've done. That's only a judgment of condemnation. Therefore, there's no Christians here. There's only people who are going to be condemned, right? Does that make sense? Okay, great. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so not a pleasant section of scripture, right? And so what it appears to be like is there's there's all these events that happen that lead up to like a great and terrible time. And then Jesus comes and like whoops some behind, right? And throws 
Satan and like the people who make things bad into like some kind of holding something abyss and like seals the thing for a thousand years. He raises the Christian martyrs and he reigns on the earth with the Christian martyrs for a thousand years. And then Satan and whoever is released and they go out and start a whole new war, right? And they, they come to this new Jerusalem where, where Jesus has reigned for a thousand years. Like they're going to take it because they're like the sand on the seashore. There's, there's, only, there's a limited number of martyrs, right? And right when it looks like they're going to get killed, they all get wiped out, right? And then you have the coming of the city of God in the final end. Does that make sense? And so the millennium is kind of like this island between the two great wars, so to speak. Does that make sense? So it's like distinct from heaven. Does that? Now this is the only place in the Bible this is discussed. So this has led to a bit of discussion about what happens. Okay, what? How does this work? So millennium is obviously a round number, right? So if I said Terrell owes me a thousand dollars, how many dollars would you think Terrell owes me? Right, a thousand, approximately a thousand, right? Like if he owed me four bucks, you'd be like, that's not a thousand, right? But I was like, well, he owes me 964. You'd be like, oh, okay, right? And so part of the controversy is, is this a literal thousand years or is it just a really long time, right? Is it, is it like 2,000 years or is it like 645 years or like, you know what? And I don't know. Who, I don't know, right? So there's basically three ways people have put together this question of the millennium. If you have a handout, it looks like Jill got the, got the different pictures in here. So that's kind of sweet. Um, so the, the first one, and I'm, I'm going to be a little bit dismissive about this one, but I promise you there are people that can make pretty persuasive arguments for it if they're the only people who get to talk. Um, and and I, I don't mean that in a mean way, but like um, I have never found this one compelling. It's a minority opinion now. But in times on the earth where things were going really well, it's become very popular. So, for example, Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley both believed in post-millennialism because there was an expansion of, of what they considered civilized Western civilization throughout the world, and there were a lot of scientific advancements, and cultivation had expanded broadly, and a lot of things that they thought were really great were happening. Now, there were a lot of you know, African people that didn't think this was the best era ever in the history of the world at that point, they didn't seem to find post-millennialism super compelling. But like, if you were, at the times where if you were a Christian in a time when things were going really great, post-millennialism sounded fantastic. So another, if you've, have you ever heard of the magazine The Christian Century? The Christian Century? Okay. It, I mean, like four people read it now. But it was like the Christian magazine at the turn of the 20th century, okay? And theological liberalism, which is essentially Christianity that doesn't believe in the supernatural stuff, that the Bible is essentially the religious insights of, of ancient spiritual people, and we read it for helpfulness, but it's not the word of God written or anything like that. And Jesus didn't rise from the dead literally. He, like, rose from the dead spiritually, and he's that kind of Christianity, okay, which I would recommend, okay? And so the Christian century was from that sort of mindset. But you see, in their minds, science was advancing, advancing incredibly. We were civilizing the savage peoples of the world. We were writing enormous amounts of literature, scientific advancement, and things like medicine and so on. We're going really, really fast. And the First and Second World War hadn't happened yet. Nor had Stalinist Russia, or Pol Pot's Cambodia, or Mao's China, or any of those things. And so um, people got cured of that view real fast. 
So in, you know, 1911 or 1909, I mean, a huge portion of American Christians who weren't fundamentalist dispensationalists would have been post-millennialists. And then mustard gas came, and then a worldwide depression that is beyond our comprehension happened. Our, our Great Depression, our unemployment rate was like 20%, and our inflation rate was like, I mean, it was less than 20%, I think. In, 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 um, on the continent in Europe, it was like in the thousand percents a month. You could be paid your whole salary at one time, take it in a wheelbarrow to the store, and you might not make a Coke. You understand? Like, it was unbelievable. That's one of the reasons why Germany was psychologically open to Hitler, because of the incredible psychological humiliation that they had suffered after World War I, and because things were so bad. The Weimar Republic was a terrible tragedy of history. And so, and then, and then, so out of that horrific depression, right, came militarization again, the Second World War, we, to which the American casualty rate was, how many people did we lose in the Second World War? Five, 100,000? About 250,000 was our casualty rate, okay. But something like 200 million people died in the world. The vast majority of them, combatants, that's true, but the vast majority of them were actually civilians. Okay, not very many military men died, relatively speaking to the number of deaths in World War II. The average, okay, so who was the most efficient killing soldier in the, in the Second World War? What nationality? Who killed the most people for the number being killed in the army, in that army? No, the Russians were the worst. They got plowed, they had no technology. The Japanese, it was, I think it was either 17 or 19 to one. But when we fought them, guess what the, guess what the rate was? It was about one to one. Maybe a little better for us. So how did the Japanese get so effective at killing people? Because they killed so many Chinese people who were women and children and civilians. They would just go and shoot everyone. Right? Um, a good biography of this, if you haven't read um, the biography of Gladys Allward, Gladys Allward, great biography. There's a, there's a tape or audio version in the library at High Point Church. If you're going on a road trip with your kids, get it. It's great, you'll be crying while you're driving, but other than that, it's fantastic. So, in times and places where things seem to be getting better and better, sometimes people go for post-millennialism because it basically teaches that the millennium will be this thing created in the hearts of man. That Christ will spiritually rule for a thousand years by humanity rising up and being good and living according to how Christ would want us to live and the, the Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. And that's what this is referring to, this language. It's, it's apocalyptic, like it's, it's metaphorical, but that's what it's referring to. And after we've reached the kingdom of God on earth, Jesus will return and rule over it and remake it in a certain way. Does that make sense? And that's really a really pretty idea. It's a really pretty idea. It's utterly incompatible with my theology of human beings, <laughs> which I think I get from the Bible. Um, and I don't think it, I don't think it handles the biblical texts very well. Um, because all the biblical texts about the end times seem to say things get bad, things look grim, and then Jesus shows up and wins un an unforeseeable victory, right? And I mean, that's kind of what Tolkien was getting at when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, right? Every victory in The Lord of the Rings that is had by good is an unforeseen victory. Like, destruction is certain, Something you could not have expected happens, and good wins. 
And it's not just Helm's Deep or one of, the, one of those battles. It's every battle in the whole book. You read through the whole Lord of the Rings, and every single time when good faces evil, good is certain to lose. Something that good could have never thought was going to happen on their behalf happens. And so fates are turned. Right? Let me give you one quick example of this. Because this is a very important Christian idea. Because we fight the long defeat. Christians are supposed to have the mindset that we fight even if defeat is certain. Naturally speaking. We look at what's happening. We look at what's going on. And I don't mean fight like we attack people. But we have strength. We don't back down. We are who we're meant to be. We live with godliness. We live in love even if there's hate. And we do that even if there's no possible way we could possibly win. Because victory in God is always unforeseen. So here's a good example of this. Sam and Frodo are immortal. Frodo is caught. He's been stung by the great spider. He's been taking in, taken into a fort that is being controlled by like 200 orcs. Okay? Sam is the only guy who can get him out. He's about this tall. He doesn't know how to fight. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Okay? And there's just no way. And like, and Frodo, you know, and there's just no, there's no way to get this guy back, right? Now, it turns out, though, that the, the bad guys in this tower are both orcs and Urukai, which are both bad guys, but they're bad guys that serve different masters. Okay? And when they finally strip Frodo naked, what's he wearing underneath all his clothes? He's wearing the mithril shirt, right? That he got from the elf. Well, he got from the dwarves, but he got it. He got from the whatever. <laughs> but, it, but it's like it's worth a lot. Like it's worth millions of dollars, like relatively speaking, right? And so all of the stuff that's on Frodo is supposed to go to the Dark Lord, but they're like, this is too expensive to do that. And so what happens is they start fighting over who's going to get it, and it starts to brawl between the two bands of orcs, and they all kill each other. <laughs> Right? And so Sam kind of comes in and he's ready to fight 200 orcs. He's like, I'm just going to fight him. And, but he hears all this noise in there and he's like, well, maybe there's something going on and I can sneak in and get him. And he goes in and he pulls out his sword and he's ready to die. And he opens the door and it's just all dead bodies. And he goes up and there's Frodo laying there. And he saves him and off they go and ultimately they destroy the ring. And that's what Christianity is like. Okay? Like, Jesus sends us out like sheep among wolves, how often does that go for the sheep? Right? Not very often. And so, you see, if you read the Bible carefully, this is a fundamental Christian mentality. That you don't think of yourself with a martyr complex as you step forward to receive martyrdom if that's what's necessary because that is blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. Right? And you may not have any way of seeing victory. That doesn't matter. And that's true both as like the Christian church and the world eschatologically. It's also true as you face a particular sin you can't get past. Look, look if you've got an addiction to something, right? It, it, on one level, it doesn't matter if you ever win. Right? Like, you can. But that's a different point, how you get free of that thing. It's a different point. You can be free of it. But the first point is... You fight the long defeat. If you never turn your marriage around, if you never beat your pornography addiction, if you never totally get control of your temper, if you never, 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 it doesn't matter. You never yield. You never stop fighting. You fight the long defeat. Because Christ's victory always comes unforeseen. If you can plan on it, that's probably not what Jesus is going to do. And that's a really important idea. And it's, it's all through the book of Revelation. All this, the reason, one of the reasons I think Revelation is so weird 
is so you will quit trying to make up what the heck is going to happen. Right? Like, you can't even foresee the kind of creatures he's going to make. Does that make sense? Okay. So, amillennialism. Okay, amillennialism is fairly simple. The argument for it is more complicated. But everybody who becomes a Christian who doesn't learn about eschatology is an amillennialist. Okay? Because it's the simplest, most forthright thing. And unless you read Revelation, it just sounds like Jesus comes back at some point. Like, we live... Jesus comes back, heaven starts. And that's basically amillennialism. Ah means not or none, right? Amillennialism means there's no millennium. Right? It just isn't a literal reference. That's all. And so don't get all caught up in what this is saying. And usually amillennialists interpret the book of Revelation, I think it's in seven cycles. So that the book of Revelation essentially says the same thing in a cycle of seven times, and it's not linear all the way through. Right? Once you start opening yourself to things like that, like who the heck knows what's going on? Does that make sense? What that would mean, though, is that what's referred to as the millennium in chapter 20 is referred to completely differently in other sections of Revelation, and therefore should be understood as you put those different passages together rather than looking at this one by itself. Does that make sense? And given that in all the other passages refer to the end times of the Bible, there's no reference to the millennium. Why believe in one? Right? That's a great question, which gets us to post-millennialism or, or premillennialism. So there's there's a number of forms of premillennialism, and that premillennial means that Jesus returns pre-millennium. That means there is a millennium, and before it, Jesus returns. Okay? Now, some premillennialists do not believe that the millennium is a thousand years literally. They just believe there will be a reign of Christ that is not the final reign of Christ on the earth with some group of people who he's raised from the dead or gathered in, and that will do something. Now, I asked a professor one time at Trinity, hey, why, if you are, because I had an Old Testament professor, and, I, and he said, I don't think Revelation 20 is a lockdown for the millennium. And I was like, well, then why are you premillennial? Right? Because it teaches Trinity after pre premillennial. And he's like, here's one. I'm an Old Testament professor. And he says, I read the Old Testament. There are many promises that God gives to the people of Israel that are about a physical kingdom, about a place on earth, about promises that he's making for them that seem to point to a time that is not like this time. Right? There's a passage that says that if somebody dies at the age of 100, he'll be thought a very young man. Right? But it's still with the idea that they'll still die. Right? And he says there's all kinds of these promises. And he says it's very difficult to imagine how God will fulfill all these promises to Israel. And God, of course, will fulfill all these promises if there isn't something like a millennium. And he said, and I don't buy into the idea that the church is Israel entirely. Now, that's sometimes referred to as replacement theology which is the view that everything that is related to promises to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, when you get to Jesus and you get this new thing called the church and the new covenant, everything that was true of Israel is now true of the church and not of Israel. <coughs> Israel loses that status because that status of God's chosen people goes to the church, which means all remaining promises then are credited to the church and not to Israel. Okay? Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over how that all should be taken, okay? I can only, in the amount of time we have tonight, I can just tell you, I do not find replacement theology plausible or persuasive. There are some promises to Israel that I do think the church replaces, but not all of them. 
And I don't see evidence of that that's strong in the Bible. And there are promises that are given both to Israel and the church. In, in Romans 9 through 11, for example, Paul talks about Israel like there's, there's still a definitive plan about them, right? So it talks about, there's this place in the book of Romans where he talks about a fig tree and there's like, there's a fig tree of the Jews and then like they grab you, they, there's a business like wild fig tree and like that's the Gentiles, that's like most of us, right? And those Gentiles get grafted into the tree. So they become part of this tree of salvation, right? And he's like, and you know, these other branches could get cut off. And, but he's like, the whole point of this ultimately is, is that the church will create a kind of jealousy in the people of Israel, who in this context are not part of the church. And so when the full number of Gentiles come in, Israel, in that jealousy of how the church is receiving God's promise, will then turn to Christ, right? Now, whatever you think about the timing of that and how that relates to eschatology, the assumption there is, is that God still has this program for the people of Israel that is running parallel to how he gives his new covenant in Christ to all of humanity. While his program in Christ is for all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, which is the, like one of the first lines in Roman, right? It's for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So all get saved that same way. And yet by the time he gets to 11, he can talk about how God is working in history still working in and through the Jews who don't believe in Jesus and yet working parallel with the church and that those two are interacting with each other somehow in God's providence. Now that would be incompatible with a view that says there's just a replacement. As far as I can tell, okay? Because people who do this stuff get really focused, right? <laughs> so premillennialism would be a view in which Jesus will return before the millennium he will rule for the millennium. He'll fight the last fight. And there are some views that believe that he'll like go and then come back again for reasons you'd have to get into for certain verses here and certain verses there. It can get a little complicated there at the end. And then there's essentially what we call the eternal state. Does that make sense? Okay. And so High Point's view is that we believe in a form of premillennialism. And the reason why I believe in premillennialism is there's two reasons why I do personally. First, I don't see any, I am not compelled by the seven cycle interpretation of, Gen, of Revelation, and I don't see any reason not to take um, Revelation 20 as relatively direct. Um, because I do take the new heavens and the new earth in the next chapter relatively directly. And I do think there's some issues with saying, well, tw out of 20, that's all just mythological literature, right? And the 21 is like exactly how it's going to go. Right? Like, I don't. I don't know about that. So I, I, I tend to think that that's relatively straightforward. Though there's, you know, if the millennium's like, I don't know, 648 years long, I'm not gonna get upset, right? Um, and secondly, I do believe what that Old Testament professor said. That there, if you read closely the prophetic literature in the Old Testament about God's promises to Israel and how he will ultimately redeem them and the sorts of promises he makes about land and ages and, and how certain things will happen, it's really difficult if you don't believe in a replacement theology to make that go without some something weird happening before Jesus just coming back and it all being heaven. And the millennium creates a space for that, which seems to be necessary. Does that make sense? Okay, questions, comments from Mark's final disagreements on that. Mm -hmm. So, who is reigning with Christ in the millennium? And who's like, like, assuming that 
weird that we all die before the millennium. Right. What are we doing during that time? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a couple options, right? One is, is that we continue to exist in the disembodied state, right? Because, like, what is Abraham doing right now while we're doing this, right? So, yeah, so the idea is, is that they exist in the disembodied state of paradise, right? And Romans, or uh, Hebrews 11 says that there's a great cloud of witnesses. So may, there may be some way in which they can see what we're doing. Um, and so we could be doing this while they're doing that, and apparently that works. So theoretically, at least, in the millennium, the martyrs could be doing this while we're doing that, and that would work. Does that make sense? Um, I'm not saying that's the way it is, because there's just no reference to any of that. Um, but that, I don't think that there's a logical problem, if that makes sense. Others? Am I talking too fast or too complicated? A little bit? Is it, okay, when you went yes, is that too complicated or too fast? <laughs> Too complicated. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else on that? No. Okay. We got millenniums. That's great. Okay. Good. You just want to hear about the rapture. Got it. Okay. Um, all right. So, is the rapture a thing? Right. So, what the the rapture is? So, in the book of in one of the Thessalonians, I think it's in First Thessalonians. Is that right? First Thessalonians. Um, well, it's probably right here on your page, yeah, First Thessalonians. Um, there is a reference to a taking up of believers into the air. Okay? And so, and that they'll go up first, so this is what you're talking about. They'll go up first, and then those who are dead will be raised, right? And usually that is associated with, um, okay, so, sorry, I have to complicate it a little bit more before we simplify it. I'm sorry that that's the case. So, the rapture is a taking up, right? And the return of Christ is a coming down. And in most references to the rapture, the, the idea is that there's a taking up before the coming down. Okay? And so the question is, how long before? Okay? Now, the rapture is specifically related to another end times doctrine called the tribulation. Okay? Tribulation is like a fancy, archaic word for really horrible time that hurts a lot. Okay? And in Revelation, there's a, a period of time, which is apparently seven years, which is a great tribulation. So, like, there have been some kind of tribulational times. Like, some of you have had them in your own lives, and there have been, you know, we've had Stalinist Russia, and we've had all kinds of things, and who knows what climate change will do. Um, but but there's, a, there's a reference to this, like, great tribulation, okay, where essentially mankind goes a little crazy, buck nuts, insane, and... It's about as bad as it can get. It's specifically a time of trial for Christians. Okay? But that depends on your view. But it's also a terrible time in terms of natural disasters and blood moons and stuff like that. Okay? That's why people freak out when weird stuff happens because they think the tribulation is starting. Okay? <laughs> Which, who knows? Maybe someday it's going to So, um... So, there's three views of this thing called the rapture, which is the taking up thing. Okay? In relationship to... In, they're all relative to the tribulation. Okay? So there is the, the pre-tribulation rapture, which means you go up when? Before you guys are so clever. Yeah, before the tribulation, right? And and if if you want to be like Christian cool, you go pre-trib. Pre <laughs> okay, and so then what's what's another view? I mean you know, you can figure this out you're clever would be what? Be what? In the middle. Okay, so you could have a, a mid-trip. Mid right? 
And there will be another one. You could have a post-trip, right? Post-trip, mid-trip, pre-trip. Right? Okay. So the question is, which is it? Right? Now, obviously, what's at stake? Yeah, a pile of suffering. For Christians, in particular. Right? And now, for a lot of people, it's not just that. It is what that would mean in relationship to God. Right? Because God creates an extraordinarily intense time of judgment. Because the tribulation isn't just suffering. It's a kind of judgment. Okay? And, and in some ways, pre-trib people will talk about it as different from just the curse. Right? There's a certain kind of curse that has happened since the fall. But the tribulation is a little different. The tribulation is not just suffering, but it is a kind of judgment. Like the millennium is a kind of rain. Right? It's a pre-heaven rain. The tribulation is kind of like a pre-hell judgment. Right? And so does it make sense for a God who saved a group of people to have those people present for this special pre-reign judgment? Right? And so there's a lot of folks who are like, no, that's just not... Right? Like, God refers to his church as his beloved people. And, like, and yes, he allows us to suffer in this, in this era of the curse, and at times that's very terrible. But this is like another thing. It's not just suffering. It's, it's judgment. And if we have been saved from judgment through Christ, like we should, it makes sense that we would be removed from that. And there's passages that seem to point in that direction. And so it's probably the case that we are raptured before the tribulation. Okay? I don't believe that. That's the best way I could. I try to argue it the most compelling way I could. Okay? Um, because I, I usually get upset about that because I take offense um, for people who have suffered horribly in the history of the church who, like, it's hard to imagine how they could suffer worse in a tribulation, right? Like, I mean, you have people who've had their, their, their skin peeled off and they've been fed to lions and they've been covered with pitch and set on fire. Like, is the tribulation going to be worse than that? And if so, how? Are we going to get different nervous systems or something where we can hurt more? I mean, like, it's hard to, like, it's hard to figure out how, like, it's that worse, right? And... Although the tribulation has a series of judgments, um, it doesn't actually say in Revelation that it is a it is a pre-millennium judgment that is like that language is in there. I made that up. It's logically it's logically possible that that could be looked at that way, but the Bible doesn't explicitly teach it quite that way. Does that make sense? And I think the scriptural support for a pre-trib rapture isn't super great. And so if you don't have a predetermined idea that God is going to save you out of this terrible pain, then I don't think the remaining evidence is sufficient to carry us over the finish line for that view. Now, part of the reason I say that, okay, so let me, let me come totally clean with you here, which I basically always do, so I don't even know how to say it. But um, one of the reasons why I favor that view, I don't like that view, is for pastoral reasons. Because I, I think that Christians need to be ready to fight the horrific long defeat. And I don't think you do Christians any favors by saying, well, God's going to spare you from that. Because the minute you tell Christians God's going to spare them from something, then, like, what else is God going to spare you from? Right? And it's a very difficult Christian theology to be thinking God is going to spare you from a bunch of stuff. Right? He didn't spare his one and only son. 
right? It says in Philippians 3, not Jesus died for me so I won't suffer. Paul literally says, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attain the resurrection from the dead, which is, which is Paul saying a very interesting thing in that passage because he says right before that, I'm looking for a righteousness that is from Christ and not from my works, right? And so he, he lays out this like absolutely gracious salvation that cannot be earned and cannot be contributed to, right? And you're like, yes, yes, Jesus does it all for you, right? And then he says, and because of that, because I can be found in Christ in that way, I can die just like him. And somehow through all that death and suffering and way of the cross, it's somehow through all of that death that I, I'll, I'll find my way like Jesus through to the other side and somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. And you're like, I don't like Act 2. I like the first eight verses of that passage. I don't like the last four. And then he says, right after that, all of us who are mature should take this view. That's the very next verse after that section. And so I don't like eschatological views that have a significant component of telling Christians they're not going to suffer, okay? Because of pastoral concerns that are rooted in theology in other parts of the Bible, okay? So it's a theological issue, but it's related pastorally rather than analytically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. The view might be true. I would rather be wrong on this the way I'm going than the other way. Does that make sense? I'd rather be like ready for the tribulation, forming my character to face anything so that whatever I'm going to face, which is going to be horrible, I'm ready for. And then right when the tribulation is coming, like my pants fall on the ground. Like I would be awesome. Right? And I would be like, yes. But I don't want it to be the other way. And I think, and I don't want that to be true of my character, my spirituality, my work. Okay, great. I've gone long enough on that. Okay, so the other view is, yeah. What about the idea that the tribulation is divided into half, half of which is, uh, is, is wrath for, you know, like, like the, the pre-wrath idea where uh, God intentionally judges those who do not believe in him. And, 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 but then there were, there's also this, tri this tribulation, that's for Christians that they would have to go through. Like, there's a, a distinction between those Yeah. So the mid the mid trip view, which I don't think I even included on the handout, um, has like it's got strong points. I mean, this is the problem when you've got like three views on something or whatever. Like some of them, the three like they're not all three good views. Okay. <laughs> um, but the problem with in this case is is that you know there are things to commend in each view, right? Um, the mid trip view just hasn't really ever caught on. Right? It's had three or four people. In this or that theological generation, um, the, the, the theological generation of my great-grandfathers, so there's been like police and archer and some people like that, there were some people in that generation that advocated for a mid-trip view, and they argued for it pretty persuasively, but it just never, it hasn't really caught on. It had, it had the, no, no large portion of the church's hearts have been turned towards it as the best explanation of the scripture. So if it's right, it'll, be, it'll probably be the most surprising, um, but I, Jesus can do what he wants. Okay, so... Post-tribulation rapture is essentially just that this taking up comes at the end of the tribulation. That's all. Um, and yeah, I don't know how much more you want to hear about it, right? Like it's the so that there's this tribulation, and then Jesus Jesus will take up 
in this rapture. So those who are dead or raised first, those who are alive come up. And essentially they come up so that they can come back in Jesus' descending army. And they can be part of his conquering of the world and his reign over all things. And um, now the, the difficulty is, is that you get to chapter 20 and you've got the millennial reign and it seems like there's only martyrs reigning with Jesus in that reign. So there's like, there's all kinds of stuff going on here that doesn't, see this is the problem. Like I've sat down with like, usually if people think they have the end times all figured out, it's one of two groups. It's either liberal Christians who think this is all bunk or it's super fundamentalists who have like the whole thing drawn out. Okay? And it's like they act like every, every like rope has a tie-off. And I'm like, no, they don't. Like, they just don't. Like, you can study these different views, and if you read the people who critique them, like, there just isn't answers for most of the critique. And so they all have these major, like, open loops that you just can't close, and you're dealing with apocalyptic literature, right? And so, like, what do you think you can do here? And so, what are the, like, if you read, for example, so let me break this down a little bit here. If, if you were to look at this like a psalm, right? And you read a psalm, what's the most important thing to get from a psalm if you read it? What, what kind of literature is a psalm? It's poetry, right? And so, the, one of the main amounts of freight in that is going to be what? What's it trying, what's the effect it should have on you as the human reader? It's going to be emotion. It's supposed to evoke something, right? Right? That's. And so, like, you might learn something about God from it. So if, if Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, like, that's a claim, right? It's a poetic claim, but it's a straightforward claim in the poem, right? The reason why I'm going to be evoked is because the heavens declare God's glory. And so in the heavens, I see his glory, and it does something to me, right? So there's both the claim and what it's trying to do, which is to evoke feeling that God is glorious, and therefore I can be joyful, right? God is big. Now, when you read Revelation, the question is, what kind of literature is it, and what is it supposed to do to you, the human reader? Do you understand? What do you, what's it supposed to do to you? Prepare. Okay, prepare you for what? Christ. Christ, yes. What else? Suffering, maybe, yeah. Present service, okay. Sorry? Overcoming, right? Right. Is overcoming, is that word in Revelation? Yeah. Yes. Where? To the churches. To the churches. Right, right. There's like seven letters to the churches. That's how the book starts, right? Okay. And and the word overcome is in every single letter. In every single letter, they all end with, and to him who overcomes, I will give, and it's, then it's different in every letter. And in most of those letters, there is a, if you don't do this, I'm going to whoop your butt or take away your something. Yeah. And so it's this, So the, the way the first part of it functions is it's a letter to the church. And all these churches all stand for like all the churches. And he's like, look. And all the church, every letter goes basically like this. Man, I love you guys. Love you guys. And there's so much you do well. There's so much you do well. But when I look at what you're doing, there's this thing that you're doing. And it's bad. It's worse than you think. And you think that it's fine. And like, you can like have that coexist with this, all the great stuff you're doing. But it doesn't go that way. Like, you got to deal with that thing. Okay? But to the one who overcomes, I'm going to give a new name, a new robe, a new, right? And, it's, 
And then it's like, and then he has these visions. What's gonna, all this stuff that's going to happen, right? See, Revelation's evocation to the human reader is be the kind of church. Okay, because it's, it's not written primarily to individuals. Okay, the book of Revelation is not addressed to you, right? It's addressed to us, to the churches. And he says to the churches, you need to be what you are meant to be. And you're doing a lot of stuff great. But there are some glaring things, and you know that they're there. You know they're there. You know you're doing them. And you just pretend like they don't matter, and they matter. And you know it's going to be hard if you face them. But if you overcome, I will give you everything. And no matter what happens, I am going to whoop its butt. Let me tell you about that for 15 chapters. Okay? Now, does the book of Revelation say more than that? Absolutely. Sure, yes. I'm not exactly sure what exactly what it says more than that, but it definitely says more than that. Okay? But that is the thing it's saying. Okay? And I get really tired of talking to Christians who go on about raptures and things and millenniums and blah, 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 and then they do whatever they want in their personal life, and they're like, I'm a good Christian, and they don't care about the local church, which is everything to Jesus, and it's people, and their lives, and their families, and their hurts, and their needs, and the strengthening of each other in discipleship, and the willingness to get in each other's face, and the willingness to restore people who are broken, and to hear each other's sins, and pray that they would be restored, and to give our blood, sweat, and tears for the beauty of the bride of Christ, knowing that to he who overcomes, Jesus will give everything. And he will destroy. No matter how long the long defeat is that we fight, Jesus will overcome it. There will be an unforeseen salvation in our certain defeat. And we will enjoy that king forever. Okay? And my fear is, is that though some of these other things can be pursued and pursued fruitfully, they tend to be a horrific distraction from the purpose of the book itself. And what, this, what the scripture is meant to do to us. Because you always need it. When you read the Bible, you don't just go, what does that say? Yes, you always say, what does it say? But you also need to ask the question, what is this supposed to do to me? Otherwise, God would have given you a systematic theology. Like this. Wayne Grudem, here you go. I mean, just read it, and then you'll know all the stuff. There's a reason why there's stories about like, hey, see that prostitute? Go marry her and never leave her. Like, oh, like angels and demons and monsters and fencing, fighting true love and miracles. Like, it's just like all this stuff, right? And it's meant to do something to you. And my fear is, is that if you, it's very easy to get in the weeds here and lose your vision. But this book is about overcoming, fighting the long defeat, having the right attitude, knowing what the body of Christ is, and knowing that the Christ that seems silent and distant to you is not. Because that was the biggest problem that the Roman Christians were facing, right? They're getting killed. Where the heck is Jesus? That's the question. Where the heck is Jesus? Right? These are all second-generation Christians now. John is this really old man. And there's this whole generation of people who never saw Jesus. They never saw the resurrected Jesus. The apostles have now all died. There's one guy left. There's no Paul or Peter to see or talk to anymore. Peter's not going to come through Rome again. He's dead, Okay? And that whole first generation is gone. And you don't have a Bible yet, okay? Right? The Bible hasn't been copied and codified and all the books selected. That doesn't, that's not done until like 310. 
okay? And people are getting burned alive. And what are we supposed to do? And, and John sees these visions, he writes them down, and he goes, here. You've got to read it like that. Do you understand? And if you do, then God bless you if you're pre-trip, man. God bless you. And if you're post-trip too, and like, and I'm not saying this isn't worth discussing. It's not, it is worth discussing. Everything in the Bible is worth discussing. Everything in life is worth discussing, right? I mean, the, the, the amount of things interesting in life and creation is heartbreaking. Okay, I wish I could live a thousand lives. But any discussion can take your eye off the ball. Yeah. And that's the problem. And that happens in churches all the time. Churches, and listen, this is one of the ways Satan gets Bible-believing churches to take their eye off the ball. I cannot tell you how many Bible-believing fundamentalist churches that believe in the fundamentals, they believe in the Bible, they want to believe in the Bible as completely as they possibly can. And they're, that's so great. And then they get bogged down in this stuff and this is all you hear about, how the beast is going to rise in France and the EU is going to, and maybe they will. I don't know. And yet they're like angry and upset and they don't invite anybody to church and they, they don't want to labor with people who are sleeping with their boyfriend and like, and you're like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Okay, sorry, ran over. Okay, questions? That was number, that was number eight, pastoral implications. Okay, so... <laughs> So we got some minutes here, and so what do you want to talk about?